All right, let's pray. Lord God, as we engage with your word here in Amos, we know that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we, your people, might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so please give us a glimpse of your goodness today, of your perfect justice and your unrelenting mercy. As we spend time in your word now, by the end, may we know your heart better. And may you shape our hearts towards yours. Amen. Um, how, how many of you, can I get a show of hands? How many of you have uh, been paintballing before? It's been paintballing. Okay, all right. Well, not as many as, as I would have thought. Uh, if you haven't been, basically you, you run around a field um, firing semi-solid balls of paint that explode upon impact. Uh, they're hard enough that they often leave bruises, but not so hard that you're going to kill anyone. Uh, one of the things that I think paintball does is uh, build some great memories and some great experiences and stories. And uh, I've only been twice, but both times come back uh, with some good stories to share. It was a long time ago now, but I remember my first time going towards the end of the, of the session, of the experience. We'd, uh, as a group, built up a, a, a confidence. I'd, I'd gone with a group of friends. And uh, we're on this field. It's a big capture the flags. There's a flag in the middle. You're trying to get to that. And uh, um, you, you start your rounds opposite each other, one team here, one team there. And so we're standing around as the round starts, right down the back of the field, uh, strategizing, discussing what we're going to do, not really taking that much cover, not really paying that much attention to the guys down the other end, figuring they're probably doing the same, uh, feeling quite confident. And, uh, and then the other team decide to start just flanking, lobbing bullets up in the air, um, coming flying across the whole... That, they're a long way away. It's not accurate. And uh, one of my friends who, um, uh, let's just say he uh, was, was never known for a shortage of, co of confidence, uh, he, he, start, he, he begins to say, those idiots could never hit us from back as his mask fills with paint splatter and he heads back off the field. <laughs> Needless to say, the rest of us at that point took better cover. Uh, it was the confidence knockback that we needed for the rest of the round, thanks to our friend who took one for the team. It was a wake-up call to not become complacent. A wake-up call. Uh, we all need the occasional wake-up call in our lives. The reminder to stop and take stock of where we've been heading. A time to consider the direction of our lives. Is, is what we've built up around us, God's designs and purposes for us, or is it not? And can we easily tell? We, we build up friendships, we build up family, we build up hobbies, we build up careers, we build up houses, we, we also build up ministries and outreach opportunities, we build up fitness habits, we build up projects, we, we build all these things in our circles of influence. And we build a mingling of good and bad, of God's design and not. So we need to be intentional about reviewing 
how much is good and reflects God's heart and how much is bad and actually drags us into self-absorbed, ultimately unsatisfying decay. Living in this broken world with hearts prone to wander, we all regularly need a wake-up call. And Amos is the book for that. So we're talking about a wake-up call for God's people this morning. We're looking at Amos, uh, the first three chapters, chapter 1, 2, and 3. We're going to see a wake-up call to God's people who had stopped living as God's people. I'm going to tell you the story, and then I'm going to tell you three things to notice in the text. We're going to explore those, and then think about two questions for us today. So firstly, the story. It's 760 BC, and one day there you are working on your farm, and out of nowhere, God calls you to do a job. You are called to preach doom and gloom to the affluent and prospering neighboring Israel. And so you decide to lull them into a false sense of security. You begin with the image of a fierce lion roaring at some enemy nations. And so Amos begins like rapid-fire accusations. First, against three Gentile nations, totally not God's covenant people. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus because they beat down my people in Gilead as grain is threshed in iron sledges. Therefore, I will send fire. He keeps going. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Gaza because they sent whole villages into exile, selling them as slaves to Edom. Therefore, I will send fire. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Tyre because they broke their treaty of brotherhood with Israel, selling whole villages as slaves to Edom. Therefore, I will send fire. You can imagine the crowd starting to build around Amos. Judgment on our enemies, bring it on! Woo! Keep it up, Amos. This is great. He keeps going next against three cousin nations with a common ancestry and a lot of rivalry. Very much their enemies. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Edom. Because they chased down their relatives, the Israelites, with swords, showing them no mercy. In their rage, they slashed them continually and were unrelenting in their anger. Therefore, I will send fire. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Ammon. Because they attacked Gilead to extend their borders and they ripped open pregnant women with their swords. Therefore, I will send fire. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Moab because they desecrated the bones of Edom's king, burning them to ashes. Therefore, I will send fire. All these crimes, they all should have known as basic human conscience. They should have known they were wrong. And at this point, Amos has a captive audience. You can imagine preaching doom and judgment on wicked, evil enemies of Israel. It's as if you can hear the crowd cheering him on. Preach it, brother! 
next. Against the rival southern kingdom, Judah. I knew, it, I knew they had it coming to them. And wow, Amos' hometown. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah. Because they rejected the instruction of the Lord, refusing to obey his, his decrees. Therefore, I will send fire. This time, the accusation is, is worse. They had God's revealed truth, and they rejected him, and they rejected his word. The crowd's cheering, applauding. But the lion has circled its prey, getting geographically and culturally closer and closer ready to attack the real intended audience. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel. You hear the last remnants of the awkward clap as the cheering stops, and you can hear a pin drop. Because the wealthy ignore the poor. They sell them into debt slavery. They deny any legal representation. And he just keeps going. Accusation after accusation after accusation, three times longer than any other nation got. And this is just the beginning of a nine-chapter book largely bringing judgment on Israel. All right, three things to notice. The first one. You couldn't help but notice God's judgment. We're going to notice that God's judgment is fierce and fair. He opens in verse 2 of chapter 1. The Lord roars. God is depicted as a lion. The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, his capital city with his temple his dwelling place. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. In other words, from right across the lands, he roars. And by chapter 3, verse 8, the metaphor is now clear. God is a lion. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can, be, who can but prophesy? And as we step into the book, verse 3 of chapter 1, the first of the repeated cycles. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. The, the repetition is intense, isn't it? I will not relent from punishing. I will not relent from punishing. I will not relent from punishing. God is sovereign judge of this world and will bring justice on those who bring wickedness and evil to those around them. And the judgment depicted here, it is shown as a divine justice. It is fair. These proclamations of judgment come with very clear reasoning. The repetition of that phrase, for three sins of, even for four, it's an idiom to say, Enough, more than enough. 
It's clear, it's easy to ascertain guilt. And we are told of the tragic evil. I mean, can you, can you imagine living in the midst of some of this and experiencing it? Many people still do today. War zones, rage. The crimes of Israel's neighbours were horrendous. Vicious violence in verse 3, you can see on the screen. Mass slave trade. Violating promises with deception and lies. Unrestrained rage. Slaughter of pregnant women simply to advance their land. Desecrating the dead. And blatant rejection of God and his ways. Our God is not a God who is cold or indifferent to the pain of his creatures. And so what does he do when some of his image bearers, human beings, oppress? And so others of his image bearing human beings suffer under that oppression. What does he do? God's judgment is fierce and fair. Have you ever had a a surprising emotional response to a a movie or a TV series? There's there's the criers amongst us when Mufasa dies. Sorry, spoiler alert, by the way. Uh, Some of you, I'm sure, I won't ask for hands up, but there are the movie criers amongst us. Um, You might be nudging uh, that person next to you who you know has done it. Uh, but, but what about wishing death on a bad guy? Again, I won't ask a hand. Look, maybe this is just me, but here's what happened. Um, I, I have uh, quite a clear memory of, um, uh, of a scene in the TV series Heroes. If you don't know, basically it's, it's people discovering that they have special abilities like flying and teleportation or rapid healing, mind reading, super strength, those kind of things. And as people discover their abilities, uh, some people start using their newfound abilities for good. Others start using their newfound abilities for bad. And there's this one guy, Sila. Uh, he was up on the screen before. You can bring him, bring him back for a moment for us. Super creepy, super creepy. Uh, He has the ability to take other people's powers by killing them and examining their brain. And as he goes around killing, he builds up more and more power. He becomes super creepy. Look, you can see how creepy he is. Uh, He is evil incarnate and he's going to kill us all. But the good guys capture him and manage to restrict his powers. And so then the question is, do they kill him? Or do they study him? And they choose to study him. And the filmmakers now just toy with you, showing these like close-up shots of him. And I'd been getting pretty sort of emotionally involved in the series at this point. And um, I'm invested, right? And I found myself agitated, going, kill him! Kill him now! He is too dangerous! Do not let him live! And they keep messing with with you with these these scenes of close-ups and a twitch of a finger or something. Maybe it's just me, maybe I'm weird and twisted, but I think, there's, I think there's something there. that We recognize that evil needs to be stopped. And then we hear of, of the worst atrocities 
And we, we agree. Civilians in Ukraine massacred. Children sold as sex slaves globally. School children slaughtered. Misogynistic Taliban oppressing women. Evil needs to be stopped. But humanity has shown throughout both the Bible and world history that we aren't the best ones to distinguish where the lines are. Now, what, what is bad enough that it needs to be judged? What, what are we to make of God's fierce judgment? It is fair, and we need it. We need it. The second thing to notice in this text, God's people are called to have God's heart. God's people are called to have God's heart. Notice the repetition of God's name and also the references to rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. In these three chapters, 25 times you see Lord in all caps, L-O-R-D. Lord, 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 again and again and again. In all caps, it refers to God's personal name, Yahweh. The Israelites, out of reverence to God, uh, they, they would choose to say their word Lord instead of Yahweh out of reverence. So whenever they saw the Hebrew consonants for Yahweh, uh, they would say Lord. And, and most of our English translations carry that tradition on now in our Bibles today. So why the repeated emphasis on God's personal name here in, in Amos? Well, we see that those references to Egypt... Chapter 2, verse 10, after God's first main accusation against Israel, he says to them, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. Amos asked them to think back over their history. There's a timeline up here on the screen. And he wants them to think back to when he first told them his name, Yahweh, Lord. He asked them to think back. And so we're going to jump into Exodus 34 briefly, uh, uh, chapter 3 briefly for a moment, 34, a bit later on. Uh, it'll come up on the screen as well. Uh, we're jumping into just before God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. And Moses has been commissioned by God to be God's leader and his mouthpiece. But, but, but God wants to know who, uh, but sorry, Moses wants to know who's backing him. See, almost everyone around has a polytheistic worldview, and so uh, Moses needs to be clear which God he's talking about when he says, God says this. And so he's asked, and God answers, Exodus 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, see in all caps, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Hundreds of years later with Amos. His name is I Am, and his name is Yahweh. In Hebrew, it's a, it's a play on words. They, they look and sound very similar, those two words. And so God reveals his personal name to the people he has made covenant promises to. 
He then needs to bring terrifying and devastating acts of divine justice on Egypt until the hard-hearted Pharaoh will finally release the enslaved Israelites. This is the name that is repeatedly emphasized by Amos. You've forgotten your God who brought you out of slavery. And what does forgotten look like? They have become the oppressors. Back into Amos, Amos chapter 2, verse 6. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. A pair of sandals is a trivial amount of money. Slave trading has become rampant and they are calloused to the oppression. They trample on the heads of the poor, verse 7, as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. It's a corrupt legal system that is growing the divide between rich and poor. Continuing verse 7, Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. This likely refers to the abusing of female indebted slaves sold into a household. Verse 8, they lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. What's happening is they're likely giving extortionist loans to someone that's so poor that they've only, for, uh, only got for a bond the clothes on their back, their cloak. And under Exodus 22 law, they should return it before sundown so they have something to sleep with and not be cold. But they don't. Continuing verse 8, In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Their God. If you look in NIV translation, you'll see it's a lowercase g. A tragic state of reality. In one little Hebrew word, your God, Amos makes a piercing observation. Yahweh, the Lord, is no longer their God. They have chosen idols and fake gods. This is idolatry. It's worship of the fake gods of wealth and pleasure. And it's chiefly shown in their complete disregard for the poor. They are callous and complacent about the suffering around them, and they contribute daily to the oppression. Surprisingly, Amos's charge against them is primarily in these categories of, of compassion, of, of mercy, of justice. Their moral failure in these areas is what highlights their rejection of God. And so Amos is showing us that God's judgment of Israel is because of his heart for mercy, of his mercy-filled heart. We'll come back to that more in a, in a moment. But here's, here's Amos's point. You oppress people when you were once oppressed. You were poor and God made you rich. And now you use that power to make others poor. A once enslaved people now enslave people. They're God's holy, redeemed people freed from slavery. They should know better. And so Amos is, is sent to say to them, how dare you, Israel? How dare you? Here's the thing. Israel is called to account because they are God's precious people 
And God's people are called to have God's heart. They forgot their history. They forgot God's heart. And so as we read, have you forgotten your history? Have you forgotten God's heart towards you? Have you forgotten the cross? Do you ever have a posture of of judgment or looking down on those who don't yet know Jesus? Are you comfortable with living your life making little impact on the poor and needy in this world? Are you content that you don't have enough time in your schedule to seriously commit time to reaching out to the spiritually poor, those lost and without hope, without Jesus? God's people are called to have God's compassionate heart. And so we see the third thing to notice in this text is that with a great calling comes a great responsibility. By chapter 3 we're told this, reasons for why God has sent Amos to proclaim this to Israel. Hear this word, people of Israel. The word the Lord has spoken against you. Against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. There's that reference again. You only have I chosen of the peoples of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your sins. Amos reminds Israel of God's faithfulness to them with Abraham in choosing to make, make him the beginning of the nation of Israel and in Moses and rescuing them from slavery. Israel had a great calling from God. They were his only chosen people, and yet they were ignoring their calling, focusing instead on getting rich and comfortable. And they didn't care how they got there. It didn't matter how many people they stepped on to get to the top. God's judgment of Israel actually highlights his heart of mercy. Back to Exodus. This time, the other side of the story, after their rescue, we've seen God tell them his name for the first time, and now we see God describe himself, describe his character for the first time. So to set the scene, God's rescued them, and they have just almost instantly rebelled against him again in worship of a fake God right after he saved them. And God's response has been one of restoration and relationship with them. And he says this, Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. The emphasis of God's heart is on mercy. The first thing, the first description, it's mercy. And in a broken world, there is recognition that he he will also need to bring justice to the guilty. And this is acknowledged in, verse, in that last verse 7 in language that was familiar to the time and place. 
But what defines God? Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding, rich in love and faithfulness. That, that defines God. Do we have an impoverished view of God's heart? God's people are called to mirror his heart. Amos is a warning to Israel, to an Israel who does not mirror his heart. Israel is now guilty. They were called to have God's loving and merciful heart, and they failed. Again and again they failed. They so resisted, so rejected God's heart, that now devastating judgment is coming their way. So is there a glimmer of hope in this for them? Amongst all this condemnation, there, there is. There is a very important glimmer of hope. Particularly seen clearly at the end of the book, which we won't come to today. But what we can recognise even at this point in the book of Amos is that he has been sent. Because silence is the greater judgement. Silence is the greater judgement. This is a warning prophecy. It's a wake-up call. In 40 years, here's that timeline again on the screen. In 40 years, Samaria, Israel's capital, will be gone. Here's that timeline up on the screen. In 40 years, they're going to be wiped out. So now is the time to change that, to throw themselves on God's mercy-loving heart, hearing the warning, hearing the judgment coming, and throw themselves on God's mercy-loving heart, what, what would have happened? But later in the book, we see that they don't. Instead, they try to throw Amos out of town. No surprises there. Amos describes what their, res their rescue from judgment will look like. Did you notice that line in chapter 3, verse 12? This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued with only the head of a bed or a piece of fabric from a couch. Can, can you imagine a shepherd celebrating his daring rescue? There I was. The lion had one of my sheep. And I go in and I wrestle him to the ground and I rip open his mouth and I pull out my sheep rescued. Here's my lamb chop and my ear. Nice rescue. It's, it's comical and it's tragic. That's not a rescue. Rescue was not coming for Israel. Instead, in 40 years, it would happen. The Assyrian Empire would wipe out the northern kingdom forever. With great calling comes great responsibility. And it would be up to Judah, the southern kingdom, for God's promises to be fulfilled through. Israel would be gone. I grew up with uh, one sibling, and I was the younger one. Have I got any other younger siblings out there? Okay, cool. I had a few of you out there. Good. Um, it's tough being the younger sibling, isn't it? It can be hard work. I mean, no, no one listens to you. The big siblings get to do all these things that you don't get to do. And no one wants to do what you want to do. You know, it's easy to bemoan being the younger sibling. 
All the older ones are going, no, this is not true, not at all true. Uh, it, it's easy to bemoan being the younger sibling, but it had its benefits, if we're honest, younger siblings out there. See, when it, when it, when it came time for my sister and I to get in, into trouble for something that we had done, my sister often got the larger share of the blame and the consequences. <laughs> Why? You're almost four years older. You should have known better. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, should have known better. Yep, yep. <laughs> great responsibility leads to great consequences. So what about us today? The hope was fading fast for callous, close-minded Israel. But what about us? We have a hope, don't we? We have a hope. The first of our two questions. Question one, what is our calling? To be defined by God's mercy. As we read of Israel's glimmer of hope disappearing and, and recognise the ways that, that our own hearts are, are not that dissimilar, and we're honest, we're, we're no more capable of living God's ways than Israel was. So what hope do we have? Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says you are blessed when you're poor in spirit. You are blessed when you realize that you desperately need God. Because Jesus came for the likes of us. A few chapters later in Matthew's gospel, Matthew gives us the story of, of Jesus calling Matthew the, ta the tax collector, a, a greedy, lying, selfish traitor. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with his disciples. When the Pharisees, the religious leaders, saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And he quotes another, another minor prophet like Amos. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We can be a people defined by God's mercy. And if we are defined by God's mercy, then we will also display God's mercy. 1 John 4.19 We love because he first loved us. Paraphrasing a line from John Piper, God's people should care deeply about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. We live in a world full of hurt, pain and suffering. Almost 10% live in extreme poverty. One billion children worldwide live without access to education, health, housing, clean water, nutrition? Do we care deeply? 
And if we do, how is that care visible? We live in a town of 40,000 people, spiritually destitute, on a trajectory to spend an eternity suffering rather than enjoying God and his new creation. For that matter, we live in a world with 3.2 billion people who are living in situations where they will currently never hear the message of Jesus. I'm talking about unreached people groups. Do we care deeply? And if we care, how is it visible? What ways do we show it? God calls us to be a people defined by his mercy. So our, our own identity can and should be secure in his unconditional love and mercy on us. And our lives can and should display his mercy to those around us as far as we can possibly reach. As we read Amos 1-3 to this morning, may we hear the wake-up call. This brings us to our last question and by way of closing. Question two. To reflect for ourselves, are we complacent and apathetic to our calling as God's people. You cannot pursue God and ignore those God cares about. Do we take Micah 6.8 seriously? He has shown you, O human, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We tend to think of our chief sins against God in primarily personal, individualistic, religious ways. The lust in our hearts or the pride in our hearts or that lie that we told, not so much the effect it had on someone else, or that we personally rebel against God or that we are internally selfish, not to mention the effect on those around us. But the Bible shows us that sin, it shows sin to be far more communal as well. Amos highlights that a real relationship with God will transform our relationships with others. And so Amos's charge against Israel was primarily in those categories of compassion, of, of mercy and justice. Their failure to bring God's good to, to people highlighted and their rejection of God. Do you want to fight your sin? Yes, deal with the heart of it. Je- Jesus tells us that's what it, where it comes from. But as, as you do that, don't fully dislocate that from your actions. Because as we fight our sin, the result will be you will feed the hungry. You will raise awareness about injustice. You will pray passionately for the poor, both physically poor and spiritually poor. You will reach the lost with the hope of the gospel. God's people are called to have God's heart, and that is very visible when it happens. 
So may we each ask ourselves this morning, am I complacent and apathetic to my calling as one of God's people? To close quickly, three, three ways God's mercy-rich heart might, might be visible in your life. One way, a, a compassion sponsor child or similar kind of program. Uh, another way, uh, buying and spending habits that promote concern for fair trade and, and other uh, high ethical standards like Rainforest Alliance certification, the fair trade certification, or small-scale direct trade uh, for things like coffee, chocolate, and tea. Getting more informed on those things through resources from places like Baptist World Aid. Or a third way, God's mercy which heart could be visible. Inviting a friend who is not yet a Christian to read Mark's Gospel with you over a weekly coffee. That's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? God calls us to be defined by his mercy-rich heart, both in our identity secure in him and visible action, giving his mercy out into this world. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you for calling us to yourself and your mercy-rich heart towards us. And please help us, empower us, enable us and equip us to share your heart with those who so desperately need it in so many ways. Help us to be a people ever increasingly defined by your mercy. Amen. I'm going to invite the music team up and